Father, we thank you for your love for us. Our hearts have been greatly stirred this morning just simply by the music, uh, reminding ourselves of those great words that we've sang today. Men who stood in the waters of baptism confessing that they were sinners, helpless, and professing that the Lord Jesus Christ, greater than themselves, rescued them from their sins. And so, Lord, we thank you for this. It's encouraged our hearts. You've given men to care for the church, to shepherd it. We've seen your hand move in that. Particularly lately and now with Hayward coming on, Lord, we, we praise you. This is your work, and we give you the glory and honor for it, Lord. For marriage, Lord, we know that you are the God of marriage. It is your institution, not man's. You, in, you in, in, instructed in the garden that it was to be done between male and female. And you direct people to each other, and you give them a love for the Lord Jesus Christ that bonds them together in a love for each other. And so we thank you for engagements and weddings that remind us of the gospel. And so we ask that you bless our young people in this church. Bless Hayward and Paul's ministry as they minister to the, to the young adults, Lord. Raise up many of them, Lord. We need them. The church needs young people, young families, young marriages, young adults, Lord, who love the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. We pray that you would strengthen them. Lord, I pray for our city, our town, our, our state, our country, our world, Lord. So easily gripped by fear. And yet we are also mindful to be conscious of those who are suffering. We do know there are some sick and, and some have passed away because of this virus, Lord. And so we are mindful. We pray that you would use that to draw people to yourselves. We pray that you would even use the fear of man to cause people to run to a savior and draw them to yourself, Lord. Father, I pray for businesses that are represented in this building and members of this church, Lord. Doubtlessly, some will suffer from this. I pray, Lord, that you would protect their income and their businesses and give them a godly response to people. Lord, protect our church, Lord. It seems so easy that now the government can just say to do something and most people will follow it. And Lord, we can see and know from the scriptures there will be a day they will not stand for the proclamation of Christ publicly. And so, Lord, we pray that as we learn from your word today, as we see prophetic writings of, from you, Lord Jesus, that we would be able to connect that and learn from it and be encouraged by it. And that you would lead us through difficult times, Lord, and we would cling to you. Lord, this is a great day. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. I pray for all of those who couldn't come for one reason or another, Lord. I pray many are watching now that they would be encouraged, Lord. And our church would unite for the cause of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 13, if you're turning there um, or have your Bibles, I trust you do, I, I would encourage you to read this whole discourse this week. I will be over the next few weeks, working my way down through this great discourse. It is the longest of the recordings in the book of Mark of Jesus' teaching. It's also recorded in Matthew 24 and 25 and either, even more length, and you'll hear me refer to that at times. Luke contains a few other independent materials of it, but this is an amazing discourse, and it was delivered on the Mount of Olives, and thus it's called the what? 
Olivet Discourse. It is a prophetic presentation of the future for his disciples and the church. And yet, yet, brothers and sisters, it's filled with warnings and exhortations and encouragement to live a life of faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ uses his discourse to announce coming destruction, particularly of the temple. And he's going to answer questions from these four disciples. But like many Many of the passages, the prophetic portions of scriptures, there's lots of views on this. But I think the Bible will lead us to what God is trying to tell us. It's also been subject to a lot of liberal critics. They will neglect it and say it's not true or it was added by some scribe. But the discourse contains nothing unworthy of what Christ teaches It is Christ himself speaking here, recorded by the inspiration of the Spirit of God to the writers to record these things. One of the things you'll notice if you read apocalyptic material, it lacks any of that figurative or high language of the Jewish apocalyptic writings. And it focuses, and what you'll see is it focuses on the gospel in a a gospel-driven morality that comes from it to those who will go through difficult times. So there's nothing here as we read and study Mark chapter 13 together that we should reject of not being from Christ. It's completely authentic and extremely important for the life of the church. Now, as we work our way through this Olivet Discourse over the next few weeks, it's important to remember a few things. One, context. We tell our guys all the time, listen, context is king. Hey, thank you. I heard somebody say it. Context is king. We don't pull stuff out of context, and this is in a context. Jesus has been teaching. It's right during that Passion Week. He has not changed the context that he's talking about, and you'll see that as we unveil and impact this passage. Remember that often prophecies are telescopic. If you ever stood on a mountain and looked through binoculars and looked down and see the valleys, but beyond that, there's some hills, and even beyond that, there's more. And, and often, prophetic material helps us see things that are now, but yet things that are to come. We, we realize that as we study those things. And Christ doesn't give every answer to, in every time he teaches, to all things, right? He's working on something here, particularly for his disciples. And so there's an already not yet aspect to this. And one more thing, just to remember as we work our way through this, all of, all of, well, all of this first part that we'll see here was fulfilled in 70 AD. This was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But think about this. Revelation was written 20 to 30 years after that. And so we believe there is still a future fulfillment for most of this. And we'll see that as we look through this. Now, Here's the context. Jesus entered in a few days ago into Jerusalem. Great fanfare, right? We call it the triumphal entry. And there, after that triumphal entry and some discussions with some people, he goes to the temple. Remember, he looks at the temple and he he sees what's going on. He gets a good understanding of how they're handling his father's house. And then from there, he goes back out and he comes back in and he curses a fig tree and, and analogies are made. And then he comes back to the temple and he begins to teach, right? 
There he begins to engage with these false teachers. And one group after another group come with questions in order to trap him. And each and every time he defends himself and his teaching perfectly from the word of God. That is the context. When he's done with that, he brings his disciples into the temple. He wants them to see what the false teachers have done. Here's a widow. Here's what their teaching and their acts have done. And he gives a great example. And there, Matthew chapter 23, that discourse of the woe chapters is all packed in there. He is pointing his disciples to the false teaching of this Jewish religion in this particular time of rejecting Jesus Christ, rejecting him as both God and Messiah. And he is very strict about this. And that has not changed. That's the context of the Olivet Discourse. And we want to understand that because it's, it's not some, well, there's some foreign thing that was just dropped in the middle of this. And I think you'll see that as we go through this. Let's look at a couple of thoughts today. Number one, and we're only going to get to verse eight today, I can see, but we'll, but we'll do our best to get down through it. Number one, Christ warns that the church will not be built on outward appearances. Christ warns that the church will not be built on outward appearances. Look at verses uh, one and two with me as we start to go. Notice right off the bat in the first verse it says he, Jesus, was going out of the temple. And I think that's important because Jesus' public ministry is done. All that he's done, think about this. Myriads of people that he has healed and affected and teached. Now he's walking out of the temple. This is the finality of his public ministry. John 12 is probably what takes place where he Finally, in this point, somewhere along here, lifts his hands up and declares himself as the light of the world. He has come into the world, but the world has rejected him. And this is the it. This is in. He'll never enter that temple ever again. See, Jesus had described and displayed how the religious leaders had made a mockery of this temple, his father's house. They had hijacked it. And it had become their temple. And, and, and thus, that's why Jesus said they had turned it into a den of robbers and making people twice the son of hell as themselves. But notice what happens as they're leaving. You can see the scene. They're walking. The widow has just left. He's given this testimony. He's given this understanding of what's going on with this woman. And then they walk out. And, and this provokes questions, doesn't it? Notice the rest of verse 1. It says, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, Behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Most likely they were leaving the temple and, and one of the disciples made this comment. And you go, well, where does this come from? Why, why did that all of a sudden Mark record this? Why would they all of a sudden, as they're leaving, turn around and say, Jesus, look. Look at this beautiful temple. Well, at the end of Matthew, um, chapter 23, which is part of that whole discourse around the widow and the rebuke of the leaders, verse 38, Jesus said Jerusalem will be desolated. And doubtlessly, this disciple here is bidding Jesus to say, well, look at this magnificent structure. And, And the term here is imperatives, right? He says, Jesus, he's commanding Jesus, look at this structure. He's trying to figure out why Jesus said that he would destroy these things. So it was difficult for the disciples here to to see and look at the destruction of this beautiful temple. 
They, remember, they're hoping they're coming back and this is the center of the kingdom right here, right now. We get to sit on his left and his right. We get to rule. We get to have the power. They're thinking that way still. They, they are not understanding that Christ is going to the cross. And so they're asking these questions. This is a magnificent temple. I don't know if you've ever studied some of these things, but it was an amazing temple. Josephus records that the temple was, was built on a strong white stones and, and if you've ever seen the Temple Mount, the stones are still there today. The temple was destroyed, but each of the stones measured over 38 feet long by 12 feet high and 18 feet wide. The stones weighed over 100 tons. This is before machinery as we would know, right? And notice the disciples, notice in the passage he says, look at these buildings, plural. So, so here... This disciple is exhorting Jesus to, to see not only this beautiful temple, but see the various courts and the chambers and the colonnades and all resting on this amazing platform that Herod the Great had built in this enlarged templed area. Luke reports also in this text that they, they wanted him to see the costly decor of the temple. The Herodian temple was recognized as one of the many wonders of the world at the time. And yet, Jesus turns to them, and notice verse two. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? See, I think Jesus is acknowledging, I see what you're talking about, I see the great buildings. But he does this with a question. Notice there's a question mark in your Bible. Do you see these great buildings? Jesus does this to fix their attention on, on the material temple in preparation for this discourse. He wants them to take one good look at this. Remember, friends, that the Jews worshiped the temple. This is all they had left. They had lost everything to, to one group after another, from the Assyrians to the Babylonians to, to the Greeks and Jews, uh, to, to the Romans. The Jews had been under it. And they worshiped this temple. In fact, it became a sinful pride for them. And for the religious leaders, it was a massive form of income for them. And that's what hurt them so bad when the Lord Jesus comes in and drives them out, showing they had turned the Father's house of prayer into a house of thieves. But because it was, it was stunning, people would give money to it. When you came to this temple, it was so stunning it's, a, it's one of the wonders of the world. Have you ever seen something so magnificent like that in, in, in nature or, or even man-made? You stand there and look. Have you ever been for us, you know, we take people to the Golden Gate Bridge for the first time and never seen it and take them across and they just kind of stand there. Look at this engineering marvel, engineering marvel. It's stunning. It grabs your attention. And yet, this is what these Jewish leadership had used. They took advantage of this. And so instead of becoming, look, look at this. Instead of becoming a place where you met God, a house of prayer, Jesus said, this now becomes a place where people thieve, or thieves they take from them. And not only just take their money, but teach them a false way to God. And so here the Lord is answering these questions. In a short time, the church age will begin. I want you to think about this. And part of the reason for this lengthy discourse is to help his disciples not repeat the sins of the Jewish nation. 
In many ways, Jesus was instructing disciples to do the opposite with the church. Do not make buildings to worship. <laughs> and so the church was going to be made up. Think about the church and the birth of it. In Acts chapter 2, it's made up of true followers of Christ, not buildings, not outward worship. But Christ's true followers who, who, who would be those who truly strive to love him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. Christ does not want them locked into some building, some imagery, some outward form of worship. And so he's turning these disciples' attention towards this. Notice the latter half of verse two. He says, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Well, this is an explicit announcement of prophecy that was coming, right? Up to this point, Jesus had been applying truth to the scene set before him. He was taking on the challenges of the, of the leaders who were trying to trap him. He was illustrating what they had done to this widow. But now, right now, Jesus turns to predictive prophecy. Actually, very exact prophecy, which would be, of course, anything that came out of Jesus' mouth. And he was declaring what would happen in the future. Notice the double negative that's in there. I want you to see that stress. Not one stone, the word not here, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. This is Jesus' way of saying, this is exactly what's gonna happen. You can put your money on it. This is what I'm going to do. Now, these words of Jesus were dreadfully fulfilled in AD 70. If you know your history, and particularly history of the early church, we see this because the effects that happened to the Jews also happened to the Christians as well. But the temple was actually destroyed by fire. And, and contrary to what Titus really wanted to do, he wanted to preserve the temple but the fires that were in the, in the city and caught onto the temple eventually destroyed it. And so, according to Josephus, because of the state of the walls, the, the city, and particularly the temple all being burned out, Titus said, level it. And he didn't know what he was fulfilling the word of God, but that's what exactly what he was doing. In those great history lessons recorded by Josephus, he said... The destruction of the temple was so much that if you were to come and not know that it was there before, you would have no idea it was actually there. That's how the word of God was fulfilled. It was completely wiped out. Only the large platform which the temple sat on remains, and that's still there today. It's called the Temple Mount. So truly, Christ is preparing those who will who will be used to birth the church. Acts 2, it's coming. He's going to die in the next two days. He's going to be raised three days after that. He's going to appear and he's going to challenge and exhort and commission his disciples to go and be apostles and preach the gospel. In Acts 2, the church is going to be birthed. And you can see him. He does not want the church built on outward displays. And we praise God for buildings that God has given us to meet in. But we do not worship this building. And you can see the events that go on today, just how easy it could be where they could say, you don't meet anymore. And where would we go? Homes, churches. Because this is not the church. This is a beautiful building God gave us that we use for school and for church and, and for discipling and ministry and all of those things. But you are the church. You are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that was what he wanted built on. The old hymn writer said, the church is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is the church. And Jesus did not want these disciples to look back at that and go, oh, look, we can have that. Second thought. God also, excuse me, God always judges sin and particularly the rejection of his beloved son. God always judges sin and particularly the rejection of his beloved son. After Jesus makes this startling announcement in verse two, he leads his disciples out the east gate of Jerusalem. You can, just giving you a visual here. He goes down across the Kindred Valley. He walks up onto the Mount of Olives. And then he's now looking back on the city and on the Temple Mount. He would have done this because Bethany is beyond the Mount of Olives. They were going in and out. He was not staying in the city. He would come in and teach. There were men trying to kill him, even would try to kill him premature than what God had ordained. He was going in and out of the city. He was probably going back to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. And there's people traveling with him. But on the way back, he stops with his disciples after this great announcement that, see that place? Not one stone will be left upon And so here he is now across the way. Notice verse three with me. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Now Jesus and disciples are looking across. um, This is an amazing sight. Uh, Mount of Olives, uh, they say, is roughly about 150 feet higher than the temple. It's probably evening by this time. Jesus has been teaching all day long. He's been uh, the, refuting the, the attacks one after another. He's training his disciples. John fills in some more of the teaching that happened as, as well as Matthew and Luke. And now it's probably evening. The sun's probably setting. We, we know it sets in the west. They're, pointing, they're looking back towards the west and maybe just setting over the Temple Mount and certainly over Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John, and Mark adds this. Mark's the only one that says that Andrew was there. And they seem to be wrestling with this previous statement. And wouldn't you? <laughs> you look back at this incredible building, amazing architectural design, and Jesus says, that's going to get leveled. So it seems that they're wrestling with this. Notice the word private in verse 3. They came to him privately. Well, doubtlessly, there's others traveling back and forth with Jesus in and out of Bethany. And I don't believe that the disciples were intentionally trying to keep the, other, the rest of the 12 out of this. But this announcement, what Jesus said, the implications were startling. And so I think these four men, and Andrew's with this inner circle for whatever reason, he's there and they, they want to know. And, they, and I think one of the things they're doing is they, they, they don't want to startle people. Wait, wait a minute. We all think the kingdom's gonna get set up here on earth. What are you talking about? This is gonna be destroyed? Look at verse four with me. Tell us. Imperative. When will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Here you notice the disciples ask a double question. When will these things be and what will be the sign? The plurality of the question indicates the magnitude of the event that Jesus is describing. The disciples seem to to accept Jesus' statement, right? Okay, oh, whoa, that's quite a statement, Jesus. But but what's the timing of this? 
When, is this, when are the details of this gonna take place? So the when and the what would go together with the disciples' minds. They're, they're wrestling with this, right? Now, like many Jews, they knew there was a coming of the end of the age. They, they knew, and here's the term that you'll see all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, the day of the Lord. They believed in the day of the Lord. Passages like Zechariah 14 would come to mind. They would understand that God would battle over Jerusalem. There would be a great battle against the nations. They understood that. Um, And they understood that he would establish his kingdom over all the nations. They, They understood that. But what they couldn't see was there was something else very important that needed to be done. They couldn't get in their minds at this point that they needed the propitiation work of Christ. They needed Jesus to die for them. See, see that's what happens. We, we, and I think this is what happens even in the prosperity gospels. Well, I'll believe in Jesus and I get all this stuff. You don't realize it and you just heard these testimonies. We, we are desperately need of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that is they, they looked out to the prophetic statements of Christ and they missed all the cross. They looked beyond that. And it caused them to see things that were not yet ready to be fulfilled. Their minds were consumed with earthly kingdoms. And remember, remember, they wanted authority and they don't have the spirit of God on them yet. Can you imagine on that day in the upper room when the spirit of God falls upon them and in the, you know, wow moments of putting together what Jesus said, and as they studied their Old Testament, and they began to preach in that early church, how often they said, wow, we never knew that when he said that. There's so much more to what he was trying to tell us. But remember, these men, they don't have that spirit residing within them at this point. And they are just thinking about, hey, this would be a good place for Jesus to set his kingdom up, and we can be on his left and his right. Though they probably did not anticipate the destruction of Jerusalem and temple, they believed the kingdom would would soon follow this day of the Lord. And there would be rule, there would be rule by a a Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And and think about this. Did the disciples at this point, I want you to ask, think about this. Did they know that Jesus was God at this point? See, remember, the, the, the Jews had believed that Jesus, I mean, excuse me, the Messiah was going to be just a man, empowered, divinely empowered by God, but they did not believe him to be God. That's why they crucified Jesus. We kill you because you make yourself out to be God. But did the disciples know who he was at this point? I would say they probably did not have a very full understanding until after the resurrection to know that they were dealing with a triune God. Clearly, they could not foresee this long interval between this destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the coming of the kingdom. And this local event, Jerusalem and temple, caused the disciples to blend all their eschatological eschatological views together and see that, oh, this was going to happen then. They could not see what God was doing at that point. I also believe it's important to recognize one other thought before I close this point out. And it's the, thought, and it's the truth that God always judges sin. God always judges sin. And people say, well, why was 70 AD? Why was that such a heavy hand of God? 
God judged in 70 AD because they rejected his son. They rejected the the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his own son. God sent himself, in a sense, sent them. And the man who who becomes the God-man, right? He he is fully God, takes on, dresses himself in in the, uh, the very nature of man so he could be our substitute, so he could represent us, so he could die. They rejected him. And, and this is what God does. And, as you, and, and I think most people in most end time views understand that God judges sin. He always does. He's a holy God. And you, and you can go down through time and you can see. You can look at the Noadic flood and see that he judges. But he's also patient, isn't he? In, in Genesis 6, he says, there's, there's no one who pursues me. Every, every aspect of them is evil all the time, meaning there was absolutely full depravity. There was no desire for God. That's Genesis 6. 120 years later, he judges. You go, well, why didn't he do it right then? Because he's a very gracious and patient God, even with fallen sinners. And we see him do this. He warned the nation of Israel over and over. Do not take on the idols of the, of the people you've taken their lands from. Do not take in, marry into them and don't, don't become pagans like them. And he warned them and sent prophets after prophets. And in the end, what did he do? 725, here comes the Assyrians and they wipe out the northern tribe. And God judges them because they rejected what? Him. 120 years later, 605, here comes Nebuchadnezzar after the southern tribes. Isaiah, Jeremiah, minor prophet after minor prophet, warned them, do not reject God. And they did over and over. And God brought judgment upon them. And here, when you get to this text, when we study this, I don't want you to forget this. They rejected the king of glory. They rejected Jesus Christ, the only hope. There's no way to the Father except through him. They rejected him and hung him on a cross. Certainly all preordained by God, but they were at fault with it. And 70 AD, brothers and sisters, is a judgment of God against the nation for rejecting him. And as we look further, we'll get into this in the days to come as we see the judgments that are poured upon the earth. Remember, God will judge this earth and all those who reject Jesus Christ. But he has a special place for his people. He loves his people. And though he lets us go through certain amount of suffering, even as we see in Exodus, he protects his people. He loves his bride. And he brings protection to his people, even though he will bring judgment onto the world at times. Third thought, Christ's prophetic answer and warning of coming pretenders, disasters, and persecution. I want to get through just the next few verses and then we'll come back to this next week, but look at verse five with me. And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. So Jesus is turning to them. He says, look, he begins to say to them, and and here is where Jesus begins the the weighty and lengthy discourse to his disciples. And and I believe 5 through 13, Jesus gives these wise warnings. And and before revealing all of that eschatological future, Jesus reminds the disciples to be on alert. He's going to do that over and over. And Jesus has been battling these false teachers. He's been showing, look, these men are contrary to me. He wants to show this. That's the context. 
And he's even provided an example of the widow to see what they have done. So two things that you're gonna see in these next few verses is one, that Jesus will warn them not to be deceived by pretenders and catastrophic events. Oh, now we're getting close to home. Number two, he's gonna warn them that persecution is gonna come but they are not to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. They are to be found faithful even amongst the acts of personal violence caused by the depravity of the world. So two things, he's gonna look at the reaction of the world in their depravity and then and how that affects us because we live in this world. Then he's gonna look at the personal attack that comes from the depravity. So let's just look at one today and we'll finish with this. A, the dangers of those who mislead. Notice he says in verse five, see to it that no one misleads you. Now, that's what he's doing all the way through this. Look at verse five, he says, see to it, right? Open your eyes, look. Verse nine, be on your guard. Verse 23, take heed. Verse 33, take heed. See what he's doing? There are wicked men. They are trying to deceive you. They are going to cause rumors and wars and all kinds of, and they're going to talk about all this fear mongering. I want you to be aware of this. This is his goal. He uses the word mislead. Um, here, plano is the Greek word, it's an active subjunctive meaning. It's something they are going to do directly to you. That's the idea of the language there. They're going to do this to you. It means it's willful, willfully deceive you. They willfully lead you astray. They'll cause you to wander away. That's what Jesus is warning. That's what their goal is. So Jesus wants them to recognize and realize that there are spiritual dangers of, of being misled. I.e., the last whole day he put them on display, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Sanhedrin, he showed them, this is what they think. This is how far off they are from me and my Father. He wants them to know the dangers of that. So instead of giving them a sign, they request it for in verse four. Remember, they wanted a sign. Jesus alerts them to the false signs. He says, I'm not gonna give you a sign. I'm gonna alert you to the false signs. Look at verse six with me. Many will come in my name. Dangers of pretenders. They will claim to have power and authority. They will claim to have the glory, name. When we see the word name used that way, it speaks of the glory of God. That's my name, that's who I am, that's the essence. I share that with the Father, we're equal in that. There'll be many who will come in my name. So they'll either come to appeal to the people that they themselves are the Messiah or that they claim to have authority from the Messiah. Either way, they're false messiahs, they're false leaders to an office that only Jesus can hold. Notice he'll say, he says, they'll say that I am he. Well, this marks just a a boastful pride that they claim some position that's not theirs. They speak on behalf of God. We still see this today. Well, God told me this, and God told me that. They don't refer to the word of God, and if they do, they misuse it. One of the definite known persons who claimed Messiahship um, was Bar-Karaba, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, He was a leader of one of the last great Jewish rebellions. It happened in uh, AD 132. But guess what happened to him? He got killed. And all the people who revolted with him got killed. 
They could not stand against the nation, let alone the nations, like the true Messiah would. Feinberg, in his analysis of this back in the 50s before he died, um, said that there were actually 64 false messiahs up to 1953 that had infiltrated Israel and tried to lead them astray. See, the numbers of pretenders is not complete. John warns us in 1 John, he says, children, it's the last hour, and just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we will know that it's the last hour. He goes on, chapter two, verse 22, who is the liar, who is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies, then he says this, the Father and the Son, speaking of equality, denies their equality. Chapter four, verse three, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. That's what the spirit of Antichrist is. They they pull you away from Christ. Oh, well, Christ was a good person. He's a moral, he was a martyr. Every religion acknowledges Jesus. None of them, none of them. But Bible-believing, Christ alone, him being the only way to the Father, acknowledge him as God. All us are antichrist, the Bible says. And it says that there are many in the world already. Second John 1, 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not exalt knowledge, Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. That's the big problem. They all stumble over it, right? What, God being flesh? Oh, that could not be. But we believe in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, stood in equality. And the word was God. And the word came and dwelt among us, and we behold him, the glory of the only begotten of God. There's a rejection. And that's why judgment comes every time from here on out to the end of the age till we stand in glory with God. All judgment will come upon men because they reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. All of the the seals and trumpets and judgments that you see in Revelation will all be because of a rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the text says in the end of verse six, and will mislead many. While they have great enthusiasm, they'll gain many followers, they'll be successful, but Jesus says they're very dangerous. They're deceivers. Notice verse seven, and this, is, this verse is fascinating. Now this is still speaking of them. Verse seven, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, Not only will they attempt to replace Christ's authority, they will use fear tactics to make people follow them. I I think as Christians, we we maybe have used this verse out of context too many times. We go, well, there's wars out there and there's rumors, there's a lot of stuff going on out there. You know what the Bible's talking about? It's talking about the people who create fear. There's always been wars. The first kids killed each other. Cain and Abel. There's been wars all along ever since man fell into depravity. Ever since that point, brothers and sisters, there have been wars, there always will be. But this, he is not speaking about that, he's speaking about them who cause rumors of these wars. Notice he says you. I I like that there, I circled it in my Bible because it it makes it very impersonal, isn't it? When you hear of rumors, when you hear of these things, 
Not, rumors are not actually wars, are they? And I think this is where we, we get all hyped up, right? Can you believe what is happening in our nation today? Uh, God has given us many medical people in our church who have kept me abreast of things that are going on, sending me medical reports, sending me all kinds of stuff. And the medical community is going, we're not sure. Can, can you see how quickly a government can shut down almost anything? And how many will follow it? You go, oh, how, how will Christians be so deceived in the end? And, and look, I, there are some people who aren't here because they have illnesses. They've gone through chemo, and I get it. And you're home, and many are watching right now and looking at the camera. And, and there's people on vacation because of spring break and all of that. And I understand that. But we cannot succumb to rumors. We have a God who created us. He knows when we were going to be born. He ordained our days. He cannot outlive those days. He knows the hairs on your head. Some of you, that's not hard. Um, but he knows, he knows everything about us. Josh read that beautiful passage in Matthew 10. When a sparrow falls, how much greater are you than a sparrow? And so you and I have a trust in a sovereign God. And though, look, you know, if you need to give the fist bump of fellowship, that's okay. I'm good with that. Believe in your God. He loves you. He may want you to go through something so you'll learn to trust him and turn over some things that you're holding on to really dearly. He may take you through those things. But oh my goodness, this is classic fear-mongering, isn't it? And look at this text. He's warning them of that. He says, in the end times, there are people who are gonna come and they're gonna rumor stuff. Oh, we're starting another one with Iran. Oh, this is going on. You know what's happening in the Middle East? Man, on and on and on. Look, wars don't always mean combat. But wars of all kinds of things have been bringing people to fear for many, many times. And that's just what false leaders do. Now, I love this next phrase. Look at this. And I think this is so encouraging. Do not be frightened. The word means alarmed, afraid, troubled. This is the calming admonition to these four disciples who are going, hey, we don't want to cause a big wave over here, but what are you talking about? And here comes our Lord. Do not be frightened. Boy, that's good admonition, isn't it? Do not be afraid. God holds all things. Remember in John 14, right in the middle of this, he's closing down, his, his, his public ministry is shut down now. He's spending time with his disciples. This is the beginning of it. John chapter 14 fits in here, probably the next day, I believe it is. And he says, in the end of 13, he says, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to Jerusalem. They're gonna arrest me. I'm gonna be killed. They're gonna hang me on a cross. I'm gonna raise the third day. They're like, What? In chapter 14, he starts the same way. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. There again, he states his equality with the Father. You have faith in God? I'm here. <laughs> I'm him. You know, the text goes on and Philip says, well, you know, when are you gonna show us the Father? And he says, Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Complete equality. I do the works of the Father. And so he, I, this is so comforting 
brothers and sisters, in this time, don't be frightened. <laughs> I think there's a lot of non-Christians. I think most of the people are going, what is going on? You're destroying our livelihoods. Airline companies are, are collapsing. Uh, businesses are collapsing because of, because of fear. This is all going to come in greater waves as the end comes. Well, the disciples must capture their natural feelings of being alarmed. That's what Jesus is doing. Boy, you, you haven't seen anything yet. You know, and, and we're going to see in the next text next week because he's going to say they will persecute you. They'll take you to court. They're going to do all these things to you. But he's calming them. He's reassuring them. Don't let your feelings alarm you and make poor decisions out of fear. You can see what he's doing, isn't he? These are the main guys. Peter, right here, he's going to preach Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 people are going to get saved. Peter, don't be frightened. Go out and do it. And Peter's going to stand in Acts chapter 4 in front of the killers of Christ and say, look, we're going to believe God, not you. Because they have the Spirit now. And they believe in a resurrected Jesus who's God. And they are tremendously empowered. And so Jesus is warning them not to allow political and societal fears drive them and carry them away. Societal fears. And if... And if so, they would be unfit. Think about this. If you, as a leader, if you let, and dads, let me speak to you, leaders in your home, if you let societal fears drive you away, you're unfit. And particularly for leadership of the church, he's talking to the the coming apostles, the disciples. And remember, look at verse 10, and I don't have time to get to all this, but look at verse 10. This is what it's all about. This is why we be on guard. This is why we don't fall to fear, because look at verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. A Honduras trip got canceled. Man, it drives me crazy. You guy, I think you know me by now. You know, I'll go anywhere. Give me an opportunity to go preach the gospel somewhere. Help somebody, I'll go. Not really cared about how it all works out. We're just gonna go and trust God. It's hard, it's hard to accept that. When I got that email yesterday and Josh and I were working with Melvin and we were like, oh man. It's difficult because look at this verse. He says, don't let these things stop you. The whole goal is to preach the gospel. You, you have so much an opportunity. People are going to go, hey, did you go to church on Sunday? Yeah, we went to, was your church open? Yeah, here's an Easter card. Come join us. I'm sure we'll be open. <laughs> They're all in the back back there. Go grab one. You're going to have all kinds of opportunities because people are going to go, hey, our church was closed because most people go to church around here. Well, ours wasn't. We had a great service. You should go watch it online. Come to our Easter services. Grab some cards. And, and I'm not condemning anybody. That's something they had to make, decision they had to make. But as elders, we said, Wow, unless they come in and point sharp objects at us, we're going to preach. And we're going to keep going. If there's one or 1,000, whatever God sends, we're going to keep going. And, and then if they don't let us do this, we're going to meet somewhere else where we can, you know, because that's what the early church did. They didn't let them meet. They shut them down, but did the church stop? You want to go to China and go see the underground church? They're there. They're still meeting this morning. They're, they're meeting right in the middle of all this. Go to Italy, find the church there. They're ministering to some of the worst affected people. No fear. I, uh, brothers and sisters, we have a great opportunity here. We have a great gospel opportunity if we won't fall to fear. Someone in your life needs to hear, I trust in the Lord. Psalms 139 tells, him that he, tells me that he ordained all of my days before there was one. I trust in him. 
And can I share you, can I share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ, why that gives me security? Oh, friends, we have so much opportunity here. Just quickly to wrap this up, notice those things must take place, but that is not the end. See, these things are inevitable, right? There's consequences of human depravity. There's, there's natural things that seem to be happening, but yet God is in control of these things. These, these things, they're not the end yet, right? And remember, this is God's plan to bring judgment upon those who reject Jesus. And often God brings judgment upon the world and people turn to him. Um, Alex's testimony was so poignant. He got to the point, he got to the end of his life. God used all of that. He is not the author of sin, but he uses those things to bring people to their, to their knees, to, to see the need for Christ. And so we have a good opportunity with hurricanes and viruses and all kinds of stuff. But, but it's not the end. In other words, this is not the, the, um, these immediate signs. Don't let them frighten you. There's more to come. And these signs demonstrate that we live in this rotten, moral, fallen world, Right? And the end is the, the eschatological goal of history, right? The final establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Remember, there's a telescoping understanding here. When we look at these events, look at verse eight with me, or last verse, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And here Jesus confirms that the preceding statement, human perversion will lead to civil wars, national wars, um, personal wars, political wars, wars for power, what, what look we wouldn't been through this last year? Certain speeches torn up. <laughs> battle over everything you can imagine, right? These are, the, and they scare people, right? The market goes, oh no, crash. And our 401ks go down again. Over fear. Is your hope in your 401k? Or is it Jesus is God, and he has control of my life. See, this is who we are. So this verse pictures a vast amount of conflict and strife because of depravity of man, and it's radical, and it's in its goal. These leaders, they, they, they push this, right? You know, buy this water. Jim Baker's back on TV again, selling something he's got to get you cured. Oh, my goodness. These things teach you to stay away from these people. They're pulling you away from Christ. Look at the end of verse 8. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will also be famines. These things are merely the beginnings of the birth pains. And so the second half of the verse, Jesus turns the attention to, to two things that are out of man's control, right? You can't control famines. You can't control earthquakes. You, most of you have never been in one. You ought to be in one one day because, boy, you're really going to trust God quick because it doesn't tell you 10 days out that it's coming. All of a sudden your house starts moving and you're going, whoa. These are... Things, the world is suffering, right? And, and, and think about our study in Exodus on Wednesday night. If you're not there, you should come get in this. We're right in the middle of this beautiful text of these plagues being poured out onto the, the earth. And, and <laughs> we're, we're learning that God does spare his people in it, but they do feel the effects of it. And, and, and Romans 8 tells us the earth is groaning, right? It's longing for the Son of Man to return. And you can see this old earth groan at times. And we as Christians are to be reminded that God's creation is groaning under the weight of depravity. It's longing for the, for the Son of God to put his feet back on the soil here and set things right. 
But then this little phrase, this little phrase, and some of you in this room may appreciate this more than others, these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. What follows birth pangs? Grandchildren. Uh, Did I say that? I watched my wife give birth to four children. I watched her suffer through that hard. She had the harder job. But I also watched my wife as they laid that child on her, how that pain turned to such joy. And that's what eschatology is about a little bit. We will suffer through some difficult things. There's things that are gonna happen. We are in this world. There's gonna be persecution even before the Lord will pull his church away. There'll be persecution. And yet there is joy. And I think this, this event described by Jesus himself ought to give us hope. There's a new age coming. There's a messianic kingdom of peace. There's regeneration of this world that's gonna come. And it's gonna come through the one who owns and rightfully owns the earth. And brothers and sisters, and this might be my closing statement, I promise, just maybe, just maybe, with great discernment, I say this, and sensitivity to those who are going through some struggles, could we be excited when we see some of these things? That the Lord is progressing himself and he's coming back. And so sometimes as I get a little older and the years spent in the Bible, I begin to go, oh Lord, you're coming They're coming. And you're gonna come get your bride because you love your bride. You you bought her with your blood. You washed her and made her white. You cleansed her. And you've set her apart and you will protect her and you will provide for her. And you will meet her needs. And so sometimes when I see these things go on, I go, Lord, come soon, Maranatha. Final, back to verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. That's our job. We can not let this virus stop us from preaching the gospel. Personally, publicly, this, this is recorded. Ask somebody to go watch it. Anything we can do to get it out. We're gonna reschedule Honduras. We've already said we're going. We're gonna go back down there. We're, we're going Gene and I are preaching in Egypt this year. She's teaching women. I'm teaching men. We're going right in the heart of the Muslim world. Um, want to come? We're, we're, we want to see the gospel go forth. That's the goal. And so we don't cave to fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. I did not time this, Lord. I've been working my way through Mark, Lord, and all of a sudden this all comes together. Thank you for your timing in this. Lord, so many faithful people here, sitting here physically and others watching at home or, or traveling at this moment, Lord, or some that are sick, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us as your church to not let those lead us astray through fear. You did not give us the spirit of fear, the spirit of timidity. You gave us the, the spirit of power to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you've given that to us, and that's a gift. Lord, may we not give that up as we watch the world fall apart. Lord, what gospel opportunities are there out there for us? So many people shaken by this. May, may we be ready. May we have the word of God, truth of Jesus Christ, of who he is on our tongue, prepared to give an answer for those who are fearful. Lord, help us today. Use us this week. We put our lives in your hands. You've ordained all our days. We trust you. We trust you. I'm speaking for many in this room, Lord. 
We trust you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.